So hey, I'm uh, David Denon, and today I'm talking with Tomi Gomori. Uh, Tomi is an associate professor at Florida State University's College of Social Work. Uh, he is the co-author of uh, the really interesting and excellent book, Mad Science, about the bad thinking, coercion, and corruption in American psychiatry, and also the author of many articles related to that and to social work. Today, we're going to focus on the ideas of Thomas Zaz, who was a psychiatrist as well as a critic of psychiatry. And uh, is there anything you want to add to that little introduction? Uh, well, thanks, David. Uh, so basically, just a little bit more about myself. I, I like Tom, uh, who we'll talk about in, in a bit. I'm a Hungarian refugee coming out at, at a different time period. Uh, uh, but uh, I grew up uh, after the age of nine in the United States. Uh, and my background, uh, my parents were uh, uh, participants in the Holocaust. Uh, I'm sort of what you would classify an Eastern European Jew. Uh, and so I bring some of those cultural issues that I think also in some ways impacted Tom. Uh, and... Uh, my history in some ways uh, has uh, kind of uh, shaped my critical sensibilities uh, and, uh, you know, kind of my ideas and issues that I was interested in. Uh, I've been a, a teacher at uh, Florida State University for about 23 years, uh, and my interests are always critical. Uh, so, you know, I... I, like maybe Tom, get the notion of being a gadfly. Uh, of course, that's usually seen as a stigma, uh, you know, because it's considered uh, that to be a critic is, you know, like what a, how simple it is to be a critic, you know, easy to criticize right. and you problem solve. Uh, and so, so that's kind of been my primary interest. Uh, sort of this area of mental health, broadly speaking, but really uh, dependency. You know, what do we do dealing with people who have, through various labels, been essentially public dependence? Uh, uh, and so that's kind of my concern. And then there's a critical view of the role of the helping professions, uh, are they actually helping that sort of thing? So uh, I think that's enough uh, as an introduction uh, in terms of my own uh, kind of uh, point of view. Yeah, I think we'll probably come back to uh, some of the points you mentioned um, about yourself. I'm curious how you, uh, Basically, how you met with uh, met Thomas Zaz, how you what your guys's relationship was. Well, so uh, actually, sorry, maybe we should say, should we say a little more about who Zaz is before we be uh, sure. before that? So we also people kind of understand who he is. Maybe you want to introduce who he was a little bit more than what I said earlier. Well, so he's a, a very complex character, and of course, mm -hmm. he has simply been. Uh, made into a uh, sort of a caricature. And uh, so Tom, uh, just in my point of view, uh, is probably the most sophisticated uh, 
intellectually engaged person I have ever met. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, of course, that will require you to know whether I'm sophisticated mm-hmm. and intellectual and all of that in terms of my judgment. But Tom uh, came out uh, in his early, uh, well, let's see, probably around 20 or so, uh, and emigrated here uh, and essentially uh, got his uh, college degree uh, and his uh, medical degree uh, at the University of, uh, oh gosh, that's terrible uh, that I'm having a momentary lapse. Uh, the The major city in uh, Ohio, uh, gosh. Uh, um, well, there's Cleveland, uh, Ohio, Columbus, Ohio. Um, well, I don't, well, people can look it up, I guess. It's, yeah, yeah, my apologies. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> By way of uh, uh, just the point I was trying to make is academically, he was uh, very, very uh, high achiever. He graduated number one in his medical class. And so the point I'm trying to make is he had a great deal of skill. This was not a person who just kind of uh, was a moderately interesting person. He always had this kind of uh, critical capacity. Uh, And uh, in his biography, uh, at least his writings, uh, he uh, always claimed that he uh, wanted to undermine psychiatry. He went into the profession, undermine it because of his uh, thinking about the nature of psychiatry. So how did I come to uh, uh, kind of uh, meet Tom? Well, when I was getting my master's degree in uh, social work, uh, we have things like internships. So my very first internship uh, at New York University was in sort of a inpatient setting. Uh, and when I went there, I was completely clueless about mental health. Eastern Europeans at that time certainly didn't think about that kind of conceptual way of seeing troubled human beings and emotions and all that. So I went in there totally naive. I had, you know, I, I didn't have any preconceptions, but did have lots of fears because it sounded like these people are aliens, you know? Uh, And when I got there, uh, the clinical director uh, wrote all our, we had uh, different interns from different uh, local New York graduate schools. Uh, And she said that, I just want to caution you that the people you see here are not like you. Schizophrenics uh, have delusions uh, and you got to be careful not to get lost in their delusional world. I didn't even know what the hell that meant, but I got scared and that they're X-shaped and have body odor. Now, this is a clinical psychologist telling me this. So I was completely 
you know, shook up, frightened. And what I was learning in school gave me no real, uh, you know, handle on how to kind of view this kind of conceptual notion, except in my psychopathology class, the only thing I thought was positive uh, in reflection was that there was one assigned uh, reading by Tom Sass, which uh, kind of uh, undermined the conceptualization of what was being presented, uh, essentially sort of a myth of mental illness. It was the precursor uh, of his book. And as I read it, I something clicked. I said, oh, okay, I get it. You know, I, I had a way of contextualizing the issue. And as I was talking to these impatient uh, folks, if they weren't drugged up, I really could understand what they were trying to say. And of course, you know, uh, without Tom's uh, article, I uh, would have been uh, self-diagnosing as being lost in their delusional world. And of course, that was the beginning. So that's, uh, so and then I read uh, everything that Tom uh, had published up to that time. And I, and what happened when I was getting my PhD at Berkeley, uh, I uh, started actually uh, emailing Tom. So that's how the relationship began. And I formally met Tom when I, had a conference, I created a conference for him to come visit Florida State University, which was an incredible success. But so that's, uh, and this was in the early 2000s, and until his death, we, we became uh, very good friends. And so that's kind of, you know, just a quick uh, history of my uh, connecting with Tom. Okay. Interesting. And you've uh, you mentioned before you were uh, working on a biography of Zaz. Is that I am currently something you're uh, currently working on? Yes. And uh, so I see it as five or six year project. And, the, you know, the COVID thing has put a little damper, uh, but I'm going to uh, probably uh, in the early fall or next spring, uh, go visit the University of Syracuse where his papers are uh, as part of the process. Yeah. And maybe before we get in, I want to get into some of his basic ideas. I'm just curious if you have a sense of his intellectual background. I'm just curious what like his influences were. I know he was kind of reacting to and also influenced by psycho, uh, psychoanalysis at that time. Um, I was interested to, I've been reading his uh, myth of mental illness and some other things. And I was interested to see some references to um, the early pragmatists. There's a kind of a Persian semiotics thing going on in the myth of mental illness. He also discusses George Herbert Mead. I'm just curious uh, what sense you have about his kind of intellectual formation where he what kind of sources he's drawing on informing his ideas? Well, so, so just to contextualize, he comes from a very, very rigorous educational focus. Uh, so uh, in the 19, early 
20th century, uh, late 19th century, uh, sort of middle Europe, Eastern Europe, had a very, very powerful intellectual uh, engagement with the world. You know, Karl Popper, uh, uh, a whole other set of uh, philosophers, Wittgenstein, all of these folks uh, uh, kind of had an enormous impact. Uh, the logical positivists, all of these folks. Uh, and Tom grew up uh, going to very rigorous educational uh, school, you know, high school. And, uh, and so he, that kind of thing, which is very unusual today, you know, rarely happens, was uh, an, an essence. And of course, he, he uh, like some of the folks I mentioned, like Karl Popper, uh, had a Jewish background, but they weren't, you know, religious. Yeah. But the sort of uh, commitment of that sort of frame of uh, reference was about rigorous learning. Uh, and so, so he had this uh, very open engagement with many, many influences. He's a very co complicated and sophisticated reader. He, was reading since, uh, since he was very young. Uh, and so I think he was deeply influenced. And of course, if you look at his writing, Karl Popper plays a role. Uh, the Pragmatists, Morse Peckham, uh, a, a kind of a person very much uh, similar in the kind of intellectual engagement, you know, uh, he, he was a romantic uh, literature expert, but of course, that was a very limiting notion of who he actually was. Right. So that's an interesting uh, parallel between them. So, so Tom essentially never uh, considered himself a scientist. Hmm. He never claimed to do any research. He, he was just deeply read and deeply referencing all of these sources to make his arguments, but he was a philosopher. Uh, perhaps I'm, I'm not sure that's the best characterization, but that's a good one uh, yeah. in terms of how he engaged with uh, ideas. Uh, and, uh, and that's who he was all his life, but in enormously broadly and deeply Read and one of the pleasures, my my co-author of that book, Math Science, uh, David Cohn, who's a, also professor of uh, social work at UCLA, and we used to visit. I'm a good friend of Tom's as well. We used to visit him uh, in the springtime, and those were the most exciting engagements, uh, uh, both personally and intellectually, that we had. Uh, so I think that, uh, that's his chief uh, quality, the deep worldly knowledge that we don't see too often uh, yeah. these days. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, interesting, um, both reading his books and I've also been looking at some of the interviews he did. And that really comes across both the, the combination of uh, his deep reading, as you mentioned, and also his Kind of broad experience of life, I guess, of working with uh, clients and all the knowledge that comes comes through that. Um, I wonder if we can get into some of Zaz's 
basic ideas. Um, I have a few written down and if you um, have others that you want to talk about, that's great. But of course, the central idea that he's associated with is the this idea of the myth of mental illness. And I think it's a it's something that's often misunderstood. And I think it's hard to understand, actually, if you come at it from a conventional point of view, from kind of the conventional wisdom of our society, it is a bit hard to grasp what he was talking about when he's talking about the myth of mental illness. Do you want to maybe say a little bit about what you think he meant by that? Yes. I mean, I, I, I think you accurately characterize it as a complete misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's be, uh, let me see if I can make it uh, a little bit clearer, but David, please, uh, you know, ask questions and direct me if uh, you think there would be things to look at that I'm missing or not being clear about. Uh, so he looked around the world uh, and as a child and as he evolved, he saw there, were, there was a lot of human difficulty going on. Right. Tragic, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. personal yeah. and uh, communal experiences. Uh, and so he was fully aware that there were strangers in the world. Uh, and so, but the conceptual piece that he was uh, trying to make clear is that uh, the evolution of how we understand interpersonal and personal deviance, troubling or troubled behavior uh, in terms of the medicalization of them was from his perspective, deeply wrongheaded. Uh, so he was never denying that uh, these behavioral and mood state uh, experiences that people were reporting or appeared to be engaged with, uh, he never denied those things don't exist. But he just said that the way we try to understand it in these psychiatric terms, medical models mm -hmm. as diseases was wrong headed. Uh, and he said that there are better ways and more useful ways to think about these problems. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> I wonder, uh, I'll maybe say a little bit about what I got from just kind of reading him recently and, and looking at some of his um, interviews and stuff. And because I think, you know, watching him sometimes be questioned, uh, there often seemed to be kind of a barrier for, uh, for understanding what he's getting at. And one, well, there's a few ways. So he explains it as a category error, error. So uh, mental illness is a metaphor. Um, but it's a, to take it further, to try to apply that literally is a category error, error because illness is something that applies to the, the physical organism, uh, but it can't apply to something called the mental. And the mental, of course, would be something like the mind. So the mind is not the kind of thing that we normally describe as having illness. We can see illness in the body. We can test for illnesses in the body. We can do autopsies and find signs of illness. 
in the body, but we can't do the same thing for something that's mental. So there's, that's one part of it as it's kind of a category error to talk about mental illness. Another way that I look at it, and you can tell me if Zaz would have agreed with this or maybe what he might've said about this. Of course, I come from a background of studying a lot of the behaviorists and the pragmatists. And uh, the way I kind of looked, uh, thought about it for myself is, so mental in kind of a behavioristic sense is about behavior. So if you're, and Azaz, I think had this idea too, he talked about minding. So rather than mind as a thing, you mind, or there's minding as a kind of behavior or thing that you do. And we don't talk about illnesses of behaviors. There's not a category of behavioral illness. So the proper kind of... Um, well, could I... Uh, uh, yeah. I I'm sorry. I didn't, I, uh, forgive me for interrupting, but sure, sure. I want to uh, just disagree slightly. Uh, okay. In sure. fact, in mental mm -hmm. health, we have now behavioral disorders. Right. This is an attempt... Uh, semantically yeah, uh, to address uh, something that Tom, I think, pointed out very early on and maybe some of the behaviorals, uh, perhaps. So we are now twisting our language yeah. uh, to uh, kind of control for that argument, you know, like, oh, no, yeah. no, no, we call it <laughs> behavioral disorders. Uh, and there's a whole, you know, NIMH, National Institute of Mental Health, is talking about it this way. My profession talks about it. And, of course, then we get lost. Yeah. Just like the mental illness uh, <laughs> label. So you see the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that they call it a behavioral disorder. Of course, you would want to say, so mental disease or mental illness is the usual way that that label is used. I don't know if I've heard mental, well, it's probably used mental disorder, but it's interesting that they don't use the phrase mental, uh, sorry, they don't use the phrase behavioral disease, which seems not to make sense, although they've used the, the phrase mental disease for so long that it seems to make a kind of sense, but they re it seems like it, you know, it doesn't work in the language to say behavioral disease, so they switched it to disorder, which is an interesting kind of maybe sleight of hand or something. Um, yeah, so uh, I guess, the, yeah, the categories don't quite work. Um, there's an interesting, well, let's see what else I uh, wanted to mention about that. I guess the other point related to that is the issue of whether uh, so-called mental illnesses or behavioral disorders can be explained primarily as brain diseases or not, or you know, disorders of the brain, dysfunctions of the brain, and whether if mental diseases can be explained as brain diseases, that gets rid of the category of mental disease. And this is um, something else that Zaz talked about related to this idea of the myth of mental illness. Um, do you have any, uh, want to say anything about this idea of sort of mental illness being replaced by, at some point, by brain illness? Right? 
Well, I mean, uh, so this, this, it's interesting how psychiatrists twist these issues uh, mm-hmm. to suit their own confirmatory biases. But uh, he had a very simple argument. He said, you know, uh, signs and symptoms in uh, ordinary physiological diseases are more or less clear. You know, medicine is not a perfect science. It, you know, there are uh, situations that don't currently have great explanations, but many, many medical issues are rather clear. Things on the margin can be a little fuzzy. Uh, and of course, you have to know something about uh, that uh, uh, so-called science of medicine to, you know, understand. And so it leads to kind of uh, the capacity to fudge psychiatrists fudging these issues by emphasizing the fuzzy uh, rather than the ones that really are telling, you know, cancers. Uh, of course, you have precancerous cells. Uh, it doesn't negate the fact that we have ways of identifying pretty well if you have cancer. You right. see, and, and, and so psychiatry tends to want to argue, well, you know, it's not uh, categorical, but of course it is more or less because that's, that's the nature of science. Fa- science is fallible. Um, and, you know, we have to constantly keep testing. But uh, so he just had that simple idea. Look, uh, apparently, there are many physiological disease processes that are pretty identifiable. Mm-hmm. There isn't one mental illness that is. Right. So that's all he said. You know, he said, look, there, there seems to be a tremendous, so the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Mm-hmm. So that, that's where uh, the language uh, disorder, which he felt was just a bastardization of disease to make it less uh, arguable. Uh, right. You know, so, so he just said that none of those that are listed, although now, uh, I'm sorry for always having to uh, say, but um, they have put things like Alzheimer's, yeah, I was just noticing that. They put yeah. real uh, neurological disorders in there just to fuzz up things. <laughs> yeah. uh, they also list, you know, drug-induced mental disorders, which is just an admission that the treatments, the drug treatments, brain damage and cause those sorts of things. It's very interesting and very clever strategically, how you fuzz up, you know, sort of what could be rather easy. So this is the complexity of the problem of mental illness um, is that this this is a constant strategy of uh, disorientation and disguise. Um, And so my life is very difficult for that reason when I'm trying to teach my students. Uh, But she said, so that's it. It's a simple thing, you know, when it's identifiable through, you know, some sort of lesion or uh, marker or whatever, 
it's a neurological disease. And he cites things like, you know, uh, uh, before we had actually understanding of uh, the idea of general paresis, which was the mental disorder. But once we found the spirit set uh, of the causal factor, it became syphilis. Simple. So, you know, he has examples like that, uh, which seems to me fairly straightforward, shouldn't be difficult. Uh, and I can pr- I present the ideas to my students in the same way. And you do have to make that categorical thing and then talk about the fuzzy uh, bef- in order for the students to kind of get the problem. Uh, but it seemed to me fairly straightforward. His argument wasn't uh, uh, and all that, I think, uh, difficult to understand. But what's interesting is the complications that his the people, the psychiatrists defending their lives, their professional lives, Mm -hmm. tended to camouflage. It's very interesting. Yeah. One of the nice distinctions or analytical distinctions Oz makes, at least in uh, the myth of the book, The Myth of Mental Illness, that gets at some of this, um, is a distinction between happenings and actions. So, and this kind of maybe cuts cross or cuts through many of the other categories we make in medicine or psychiatry. Um, But there's things that happen to you, like maybe a toxin gets into your body or you get hit by a car or some cells turn cancerous or something like that. These are not really things that you do. They're things that happen to you. And that's uh, one kind of problem that people have. Uh, But there's another kind of problem that people have that arises from their actions in relation to whatever situation they're in. And this is more what's normally classified as mental illness. Um, but I think he's arguing that it's better to see that see it as a kind of action, as coming from an agent. He, he's really um, insistent upon giving people agency, which I think is a really interesting um, point about him. But he um, wants to make this division between happenings and actions and talking about how Um, a lot of problems in life are not just things that happen to you, but they come out of the relationships you have with your, uh, through your actions with other people, your environment. And so there's another set of problems that should be dealt with, I think, in his view, in another way, not in a medical way. I think he's against medicalizing those problems that come through our kind of interactions, social interactions, Um, He sees these more as ethical, moral, religious types of problems that should be dealt with in possibly a different way, although he he seems pretty open to how people should deal with their problems, but he doesn't um, think that we should medicalize, you know, it's fine to medicalize things that happen to you. We go to a doctor when something bad happens to us, you know, physically, Um, but that's not necessarily the right approach and certainly not the right approach Um, If it's coercive, if we are having some kind of problem in our behaviors, in our uh, relationships with other people, our relationships to our social circumstances, if you want to uh, say anything more about that um, distinction he makes. Well, uh, clearly, he wants to recognize volition 
the ability of human beings to do this rather than that. And what he emphasized is that all behavior has meaning. Hmm. This was the fundamental piece that, uh, you know, which psychiatry, uh, you know, sort of uh, conventional psychiatry wants to completely undermine. And he said that if you take the time and the person is willing to trust you, you can learn what they what their reason was for doing whatever there was. Uh, so that's critical. Uh, I, I always, te- uh, and he always said, behavior is never disease. Hmm. Uh, it's action, it's choice making. It's, uh, you know, of course, all of these have been stigmatized to make him a, a kind of a cruel, insensitive person. It's not at all the case. And it just demonstrates people actually don't read his books uh, uh, closely, if at all. Uh, but I felt that's something that's very, very uh, important uh, and sometimes gets lost uh, in terms of what he's trying to get across. There's that it's interesting also, he said, that mental disorders almost always are about bad behavior. Right. You know, or what's judged not to be appropriate or expected or all of those things. And as he pointed out, uh, uh, you know, many uh, physical diseases, you can have a in large heart and you can have a small heart. Mm-hmm. Those are all, uh, you know, uh, issues that come up. But we don't have too much loving as a problem, a mental mm-hmm. disorder right. or being a, genuine dispenser of uh, donations or, you know, uh, although I guess uh, manic behavior Hmm. could be, you know, twisted into that sort of thing. Uh, But overwhelmingly, uh, it's uh, uh, bad or troubled behavior that is judged to be a mental disorder. Right. Yeah. And he mentions um, also kind of related to that um, when you, we have hallucinations, like if they make us uncomfortable, we call that a mental illness, but if they're, you know, if they give us good artistic ideas or entrepreneurial ideas or scientific ideas, then we kind of hold that up as a kind of genius or creativity or something like that. So we kind of, uh, Right. So we have a negative view of one kind of uh, behavior and a positive view of the same behavior in another, you know, when it uh, has maybe positive social effects or doesn't make, make other people uncomfortable or doesn't make the person him or herself uncomfortable. But it's, he points out that it's actually the same thing, at least from the point of perspective, from the perspective of the uh, organism of the brain. Um, a hallucination is a hallucination or a un. Um, you know, an unconscious thought, an uh, unwilled thought is an unwilled thought, whether it makes you uncomfortable or makes you a million dollars. Well, uh, may I just add one point? Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in terms of illustrating uh, hallucinations, uh, mm. 
uh, or hearing voices, which is the classic, you know, kind of uh, schizophrenia, psychotic disorder kind of uh, uh, symptomatic uh, behavior. So what I often do with my students is I ask them if they've ever heard of imaginary friends. Hmm, right. and, and almost everyone has heard of them and have possibly had imaginary friends. Right. Um, and of course, I ask, well, is that mental illness? And of course, no, no, no. It's, it's kind of a normal thing that children go through. And I kind of go through the steps. Well, why? What's the purpose? And of course, it's, there are a couple of reasons, but one of them is to help uh, children uh, deal with things that they are not ready to accept. Mm -hmm. And so they create this uh, projection, uh, which they believe is real, you know? Uh, and, uh, and the purpose is for them to be able to digest unacceptable emotions or things that they don't quite have a way to assess or to create, uh, you know, uh, a connection uh, if they don't have, you know, uh, direct interpersonal experiences that are adequate. And so that's just a normal developmental mechanism. No one labels these, uh, these kids because, of course, it might take the entire population of children. Uh, it wouldn't, <laughs> you couldn't call them mentally ill. If everyone's mentally ill, then it's normal. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but so, so, so just pointing out things that are just anomalous, you know, don't make sense is important. You know, as Karl Popper said, you know, you have to look for the counterexample. You know, that's the way you test. Is there an alternative hypothesis? Uh, so there are, you know, good things pedagogically that you can engage with in order to help people understand the conceptual issues that Tom, Tom tends to be uh, sometimes difficult to understand. Uh, I don't think he always uses the best common uh, language. Hmm, right. So it's a little hard to follow. And it was, it, he was a fairly sophisticated thinker. And so you need to, the assumption is you're well-educated. Right. You know, I mean, that that was his assumption. So my job uh, is to try to uh, I don't I, I don't want to reduce or simplify, but somehow use language that's a little bit more uh, common, you know, because um, fortunately, unfortunately, there's been some decline in, you know, the kind of rigor in higher education uh than perhaps uh, in some other earlier uh, decades. I mean, I don't know if you agree or not, but that unfortunately is sometimes my experience. Yeah. Yeah, I probably don't have um, enough experience to judge that very well, but I was fairly struck. I mean, for me, Zaz is a very clear, I find them to be very clear, but then I've already had a lot of background in the ideas that and the kind of references and ideas that he's dealing with. Um, but it does seem, uh, I wouldn't say that his books, at least nowadays, I wouldn't say that his books are meant for general readers. I think it would be tough for someone not very familiar with that area to uh, approach them. Um, yeah, 
but his, uh, his interviews I do find to be quite interesting and lucid and I think easy, easier to understand maybe than uh, some of his writings for kind of regular people. Um, yes. so I did want to... Yeah. Go ahead. No, I'll go ahead, David. I'm sorry. Yeah, um, I can come back to any of these points. But I did want to um, discuss another aspect of Zaz. Well, this is not really um, about Zaz, but about how people think about him, I guess. And that's the idea of, uh, or the movement, I guess, of anti-psychiatry. And I think even on Wikipedia, Zaz is associated with or called an anti-psychiatrist. And that was one kind of movement uh, taking place while he was working, while his career was, um, while he was in the middle of his career. Um, and there's also a kind of related to that is the de process of deinstitutionalization. I know you've written about some of that. I'm just wondering how you see Zaz fit, he's fitting into these um, kind of mental health movements that were occurring during his lifetime and he was sometimes associated with them. Or if you want to clarify yeah. his relationship to that. Yes, I mean, he's completely misconstrued. He was never, ever an anti-psychiatrist, never. He was always, he was a lifetime member of the American Psychiatric Association. He was a fellow, you know, he never said, I'm not a psychiatrist. He just said, I'm not a coercive psychiatrist. Uh, and so, so uh, and R.D. Lang, you know, who's another important figure in that movement, he uh, despised him. Mm -hmm. uh, not personally, but because he, he locked up his own son involuntary. So Zaz, uh, Zaz despised Lang, are you saying? Yes, yes. Uh, well, he felt he was an unprincipled narcissist. Hmm. Uh, you know, he gloried in, in this uh, role of, you know, being sensitive to schizophrenics while supporting hospitalization, hmm. while involuntary by definition, uh, and also glorifying uh, so-called schizophrenic behavior, uh, maybe even uh, making it better than so-called normal behavior, that it was, you know, uh, more sh uh, kind of a uh, uh, description of the most uh, genius sort of way of engaging with life, you know, which we now have when some bipolar labels then suggest that really important artists, uh, writers are bipolar. Again, this kind of, uh, and of course, then it becomes, it becomes, uh, you know, a kind of uh, a badge of honor on one level, but you're crazy. So you're, you know, this is this uh, dual kind of uh, definition. You know, you have a sickness, but there are some goodies that go along with you being crazy. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is a, really a deep injustice to the complexity of human behavior to go that way. Uh, 
but he was never an antipsychiatrist. He he wrote a book in, towards the end of his life that was exactly against antipsychiatry. So uh, if you're an intelligent, uh, interested uh, reader, you can look at his own book. I mean, he wrote more than 30 books um, and uh, it requires some effort. Uh, but if you're actually going to trying to understand what Tom's about or the claims he's making, uh, you need to do some uh, heavy lifting. You know, there's just no way out of it. Uh, you know, that's anyway. Yeah. I'm not sure. Was that? Yeah. No, yeah, that's great. Response? Yeah. No, I was uh, interested in, uh, yeah, uh, kind of clearing up that. Um, Cause I know it's something that, there's confusion about, I feel like, at least I noticed it online when I was <laughs> doing a little uh, research on him and looking up some critiques of him. Um, yeah, I wonder what you, well, I guess, uh, what do you think is, how would you describe the, like a Zazian solution then to the problem of, um, behavioral people having behavioral problems that might be uh, difficult to deal with, um, that might be disturbing to other people, that might be um, violent. I mean, I kind of have a sense of how Zaz would answer this, but I'm just curious your thoughts. You know, what, what would his solution be to the kinds of uh, behavioral problems that people have that um, are kind of impact on other people? Well, uh, so let me just make an overarching uh, comment. Uh, uh, in general, the people we pay attention to most of the time are the people that disturb us. Uh, so if someone who doesn't, you know, just lives a life and it's odd, you know, no one really cares. You know, you, you, you give them different labels, you know, an egghead, whatever. You know, we have these kind of gentle labels and say, well, you know, uh, odd. Uh, and the ones that we pay attention to are the ones who trouble us, you know, family members, uh, people who have very, very uh, dramatic uh, behaviors. Uh, and so, so, so that's the most, the first thing to kind of, understand is that we only deal with people and most of the time we deal with people who are public dependents. That is that somehow, uh, like the homeless, for example, which Tom writes extensively about, uh, there's a wonderful book uh, that I was just looking at uh, right before we uh, spoke. Uh, where the heck did I just put it? Uh, I don't know. I, I had it all lined up here. Uh, Was one of Zaza's books? Yes, yes. I'm. I'm just trying to. I was gonna. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is a wonderful book. Uh, this is sort of meant to be the second volume to Insanity: The Ideas of 
and consequence. He has an ex- so I'm I'm deeply involved with the homeless issue. I have been for mm-hmm. a long time, and I'm still trying to make up my mind, uh, you know, how to interpret it. But he has an entire section on homelessness, which is so insightful. But the general populate, uh, p- population of public dependency, which is really the main uh, concern of the public, you know, people who seem offensive or, you know, uh, they might want to kill themselves, you know, so those those are very powerful images and experiences. So there's no question that this is deeply concerning to people. Uh, and these are all labeled, you know, at least 30 percent, a 30, a third of the people in homelessness are considered to be mentally ill. Uh, and another third who have drug issues. But those are actually deeply connected ideas. You know, uh, which Tom talks about in terms of drug use. And uh, so, you know, 66% of the homeless are these crazy people that we control. And so his argument is that much of the sort of uh, the systems, criminal justice, uh, the psychiatric system, the uh, social service in industries, homelessness is an industry on its own, uh, are all meant to warehouse people who don't seem to be of much use. Now, of course, I'm using terms which could be interpreted as cruel. That's why he called it cruel compassion. Uh, but it's not. I'm, you know, I, I've been doing social work for 35 years. Uh, But I think you have to be able to understand the problem as clearly as you can and not use, we call these professions, social, part of helping professions. So with my students, I say, well, shouldn't it be called helping professions with a question mark at the end? Hmm. You know, it's a, it's an empirical question whether, whether we're helping. Oh, that's you're helping. Yeah. Hmm. You see, because, you know, we do harm, you know. Hmm. We often separate families. We lock people up. Hmm. Uh, the presumption that we're right in all the, you know, and our assessment system is a disaster. Hmm. In general assessment, you cannot assess individual behavior Accurately, meaning you cannot predict if the behavior will recur or when. So this, these are some deep problems in terms of the language we use, you know, because assessment tools are developed statistically. Uh, but statistics never can speak to an individual's behavior. There's no predictive because, you know, normal curve issues. Uh, but nevertheless, this is... the the rhetoric my kids get, meaning my students, you know, they go to an agency and they're told to assess using these tools. And they never hear, except maybe in my class or folks who see this problem, uh, that you cannot use those tools. It's to accurately assess whoever you're seeing, but that's that's what's done because there has to be a justification for why we do things to people. And so it, it's like a savior ass 
technique, mm. you know, so that the agency can say, you know, if someone kills themselves, well, we did everything we could. So it's a political act rather than a meaningful, helpful act. And so, so, the, so anyway, the social work is one of the places like Tom went into it. I went into it to try to maybe clarify what helping should be and how we can be helpful. Uh, and so in some ways I paralleled uh, Tom's uh, agenda. Uh, but again, uh, the difficulty with trying to understand his perspectives is that he, he says things that are too truthful. <laughs> you know, our society has to control people who are not conforming to our expectations. And so he argues that what my profession, his profession, we serve this, you know, soft policing role of controlling people who create problems. Is there so a, what do you see maybe as an alternative or, I mean, is that the best we can do? Do you think, is there an alternative system? I mean, is there a way to move towards an alternative system that might look a little better than what we have now? Yes. No question. <laughs> uh, that's the good, because, you know, my students say, well, okay, Gilmore, you, you're critiquing all of the place, but we have to go and be, <laughs> social workers, you know, right. what's, you know, uh, you know, it's easy for you to be a critic. Uh, and so Tom himself said that if you conceive of uh, help, this kind of the various ways we conceive as education. Uh, and so teaching is a wonderful example. So if people want to dismiss the idea that you can, talk with people and they may actually learn something uh, in terms of addressing his, uh, their personal problems. So education is a good model when it's working, right? That change can happen. Uh, so uh, he, he always said that the only thing you can do is if the person's willing to talk to you, that's the first. So you have to have what we call in my, uh, my sort of profession, therapeutic alliance. But it's just a glorified academic term for trust and, you know, a meaningful relationship that's not based on power differential. So if the person is willing to listen and you are willing to engage at their uh with respect for them rather than, you know, having this power, you know, I'm, your, I'm a psychiatrist, I know how you really function, uh, then you could have meaningful conversations in terms of their problems and what options they have, maybe learning a little bit about their own history, you know, maybe helping them kind of rethink what's been going on and giving them tools of choice. You know, 
sometimes folks are totally destroyed by their you know, educational and learning histories. You know, they are given the sense that they are not capable human beings. They have no sense of self uh, or efficacy. You know, my, I don't, I can't do that. I don't have, so those are the things that you in conversation can help persons learn and then give them options. So you could do this, you could do that. You know, what do you want to do? Understanding ultimately that your job, if you're a so-called therapist, I call what I do education. uh, The best you can do is offer people the ability to decide what it is they want to do, even if it means no change after exploring it. You know, I'll continue doing, you know, I, I'll, I'll continue using drugs because that outweighs the alternatives. The presumption is that, you know, what we label as bad is by definition really bad for everyone. Uh, it's contextual. Hmm. You know, I mean, uh, Orson Welles uh, is one of my favorite examples, uh, really a very, very skilled Uh, actor, director, very, very intelligent man. Uh, And he had this uh, personal predilection for loving food. Hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the stories about him were his gargantuan appetite. Mm -hmm. The notion, uh, and, and he essentially, you know, died relatively early because of the choices he made. Does that make him any less an important and respectable character? You know, in other words, the idea that you have to live forever, you know, that's the goal in life as opposed to achievement. Mozart is another example, right. you know, where, where you have incredible creations that are very, very important to the world, but you die early. You see, so, so our sort of public health model says that's the most important thing to focus on. Hmm. But that's just, you know, a judgment by conventional authorities about how we should view our lives. And and so what he tried to point out is that's an adult's choice. Tom always said that as long as you're not doing harm to others, meaning physical harm, you know, violence, that sort of thing, you should not be restrained, even if you are doing things that, you know, the family disapproves of, uh, other people disapprove of. Uh, that's not your role. You're not the parental figure to make decisions for other adults. So that, that's his big concept, I think. Hmm. Uh, but it doesn't mean that he in any way is a mean-spirited human being. He never said, leave the homeless on the streets. Don't do anything for them. What he said was that what we should do is offer help. Right. For any problem that a human being seems to need help for, and we are willing to provide an opportunity to work with that person, absolutely appropriate. 
What is inappropriate is to do the involuntary hospitalization, you know, removing pe- people off the streets uh, like we do now in big cities uh, against their will without offering them some reasonable alternative, you know, because then we're doing like social social policy, aren't we? So we ought to be saying, you know, what's the harm? What are the alternatives that we could be? So there are real, you know, so what he was saying to me was absolutely pragmatic and was not in any way cruel. He was the most sensitive person uh, imaginable, uh, you know, on a one-to-one basis. But also, if you read his books, these never come across, except if you are, you know, skimming. Uh, and looking at, you know, little uh, scrapes or paragraphs. Uh, So his solution is voluntary offering of help, which I think is actually, in practice, the best you can do. Hmm. I don't know if there's an alternative that uh, has shown more positive outcomes, you know? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I can see different sides of it. I definitely think offering help is something that we don't do enough of. I do also see that, I mean, there is some, there is an issue of, I would I hate, kind of hate to use this word, but social order at the same time, that if people are doing, um, if there's too much of uh you know, if there's too much of a section of the population, as we see a little bit in um, some cities on the West Coast, I don't know how much it is, how similar that is to what's happening around where you live, but where there's a large kind of homeless population and um, it does impact in a lot of ways on the functioning of the city. And there's definitely not, well, it doesn't, at least it doesn't sound like there's a big effort to help them as in the way you're describing um, but I also wonder, even if there was, if a sizable enough section refused help, um, I wonder what kind of solutions. Oh. Well, that's, you know, it's really straightforward. It's not a mystery. So there are public laws, you know, about right. uh, expected uh, social behavior. And he said, whatever society deems as illegal that's the rule of the game. Yeah. You know, so he was just saying, don't target people as labeled mentally ill or drug addicted. They're breaking public order. Hmm. And so, so it would be the same as if you and I behaved inappropriately. He just right. said, you have to treat all the adults the same way. And of course, what he said was that by, by creating this extra set of criteria, you know, drug addicted, uh, mentally ill, you complicate things because then you bring this argument of treatment mm. into it, which sounds as if somehow you're doing something good for the people, but it's this, actually the same thing as, you know, enforcing the law, but we feel better about it. In fact, sometimes even 
creating brain damage. You know, if we drug these uh, crazies, you know, if you're antipsychotics and antidepressants have severe, severe adverse effects. The Federal Drug Administration uh, is clear about the, uh, the problems, the, the adverse effects. People call it side effects, you know, strategically. Hmm. Oh, Chemicals yeah. only have effects. Right. Side effects are the ones we want. Well, yeah, you know, it's not so bad. And, you know, it's, it's all interesting to, to think about these things, you know, and, uh, right. you know, it, it's shaping, you know, this is Peckham's wonderful ideas about, you know, how we shape through redundancies, uh, a understanding of issues. Uh, here, it's a misunderstanding of issues. But, uh, and so, so Tom said, you know, let's, let's be clear about what we're doing. We're enforcing public policy here. And so the homeless, the reason they're accumulating, by the way, is because of this ambivalence. We don't know how to treat them. Yeah. See, we treat them as, well, you know, not quite normal. You know, and so we're confused because we have chosen to complicate a certain group of behaviors. We have people who skydive. We don't keep them from risking their life and limb. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so, so, so the idea of threat uh, is also very, very specific and kind of calculated. Uh, and it's all about terrible things. I don't want to see a homeless person sleeping uh, on the road in front of where I live. Of course, it's understandable. But the rule has not been clear enough. Hmm. It's interesting that, for example, you know, I'm a member of a board of a local homeless uh, sort of uh, comprehensive center. So I've seen this for 35 years. Uh, and so I'm very clear that unless you're really, really befuddled by drugs and you've been permanently brain damaged or you have some neurological problems because, of course, a homeless uh, center environment is very similar to what mental health facilities look like. Hmm. It has some almost identical right. populations. I have a hmm. term for it, functional diagnosis. If you look at all the people who are you know, in these facilities, uh, functional diagnosis is, means that it's behaviors, you know, troubling behaviors that we see uh, as opposed to the DSM diagnosis, which is psychiatric diagnosis. All those people who are severely and persistently mentally ill, that's a functional diagnosis. It just combines all those people because it's a recognition that the DSM is meaningless, but a functional description or diagnosis isn't because it's behavioral. And we lump all those people together uh, in terms of how we view it. So when you call them drug addicted, uh, it doesn't, that's not a real explanation. It, it, it's just our easy go-to uh, as opposed to, well, you know, people, do choose to take drugs. 
you know, the scientific argument really fails where they say, well, you know, they're addicted and all that. They can't help it. That's never the case because consistent counterexamples, people give up drugs. Right. In rather large numbers, routinely. In other words, the problem is that these are easy understandings. That's one of our great difficulties is if you call someone mentally ill, it sounds like you're saying something. Hmm. You see? And the marketing of it, well, you know, and if you're not a person involved in understanding these issues, it sounds right. You know, and that's as far as people's analysis generally goes. You know, and that's that's a tough, that's an informational uh, difficulty, you know, how to get people to really understand, are we saying anything? Hmm. You know, yeah, so that is, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, that is another, I guess, resistance to Zaz or maybe misunderstanding of Zaz, just to emphasize something you mentioned uh, like a minute ago is that he wants, uh, at least as I understand him and as you have explained him, he wants us to be, I think, consistent in how we treat kind of the class of adults. So the mentally ill, uh, I I take him to be saying, should be subject to the same freedoms and punishments as everyone else. So they should, you know, make their own choices. Um, But if they break, as you mentioned, the public, um, the public laws, they should be punished um, according to the laws. Uh, but at the same time, mental illness uh, is not an excuse, right? It's not an excuse for a crime. So it's not an excuse for a crime, but it's also not an, it shouldn't be an excuse for just locking someone up. And yeah, and just one proviso, David. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said uh, that we actually have a very good legal process for incompetence. Hmm. And so he felt that all issues of incompetence should be a legal process, not a psychiatric one. Right. And so, so he had a, you know, an an explanation of how you come to that judgment because he felt that the law is the fairest. Maybe, you know, it's not Not ideal, You know, but it's the best process in a democracy that we have available to make these kinds of judgments about the competency of a person, as opposed to have a psychiatrist um, essentially make arbitrary decisions. There's no science behind, you know, a psychiatrist's decision, no actual empirical science. Uh, And so so he did have a mechanism, uh, which sometimes people don't don't remember, you know, he, he says, judge like you judge any competency issue about a yeah. people, a person's ability to make good judgments or bad judgments. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's uh, really interesting to know. Good. Um, so maybe to wrap things up here, let's see. Oh, was it, well, before I ask like a couple of closing questions, are there any other major ideas or misunderstandings that you want to mention about Zaz? Well, well, we had 
you know, he had a most wonderful view in terms of giving uh, adults the right to be self-responsible views about drugs, you know, which is now, of course, apparently being taken on as appropriate, you know, that adults should be free uh, to choose what they want to put into their body. And of course, he was uh, on board with women's rights and all of those things. Uh, Although he's sometimes mislabeled as a conservative uh, or a reactionary. So his political points of view are often the lead stigma that's applied to Tom. And of course, the reality is that he said, look at the facts. Why is my political perspective the way you demonize me? Am I misstating things? Am I inaccurately identifying the issues? So the politics for Tom were very difficult uh, because he was an honest, open guy. He never tried to prevaricate or you know mislead. He he believed in classical liberalism or being a political libertarian. I guess is an alternative, yeah. uh, but. So that's an important issue. The thing that I want that he was very big on is that we know so little. So the idea of number one, I'm sorry, I have a couple of thoughts simultaneously. Sure, sure. <laughs> I, I'm sorry if I'm sort of uh, talking uh, simultaneously about <laughs> yeah, no problem. Different concepts, but one was mm-hmm. that was uh, very important for him was to understand that we never have volitional behavior or causal behavior that you can associate with a particular organ of the body. Yeah, yeah. An entire person makes decisions. Hmm. And so the current tendency of this uh, reductivist thinking of, you know, well, it's the brain, you know, somehow it's, you know, sitting, the brain is, is the driver. Well, of course, if you remove the heart, you have no, no person. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that's a very, very simplified point of view. The, of course, the brain is an essential component of, of a person who, who makes decisions, but it's the entire person. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and, and so we, we don't credit the organism as the responsible thing in terms of human behavior. And so that's what allows psychiatry to uh, focus on the brain and brain issues. Uh, there's, all, there's no science. Unfortunately, you know, I've, I've been doing this so long that I tend to sound dismissive. But what I'm saying is, please look at the empirical literature and see if I'm wrong. Yeah. Uh, you know, but sometimes because, you know, I, I get a little impatient with some of the, <laughs> not your questions, but sometimes I get these things. Uh, 
you know, so, and, and of course the misleading uh, things like brain scans and things like this, that, uh, you know, there used to be a notion of schizophrenic brains and they still may, may be, or bipolar brains or ADHD. Well, but you, you need to look at the really deeply troubling research using these tools. Uh, they're exceptionally troubling. And the idea that lighting up processes are causal. You know, the brain causes this as opposed to the brain reacting to experiences. Uh, right. You know, right. So, so, and we have no idea. Uh, Noam Chomsky, who certainly was not a right winger, is not a right winger, uh, notoriously said that there are uh, problems and mysteries. Hmm. Right. Uh, and what he meant by mysteries is that, and he meant specifically brain function, hmm. that we may never understand the brain. So volitional behavior, according to Chomsky, I'm just using him because he, he's considered to have some expertise in, in these areas, although critical of some behavioralists. Uh, right. Right. Uh, just said, we have no clue about how volitional behavior happens. What psychiatrists claim, they know without a shred of evidence, because that's what they're saying. You know, your behavior is because you're schizophrenic. So, so there's such a deep divide between what we know scientifically and the political uh, power that's given to psychiatrists to make claims about what clearly has not been dem demonstrated in any uh, way scientifically. You see, I mean, these are just, and the most important thing I, uh, I wanna say, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm going on too long, is that what Tom was against most emphatically is anything done coercively to adults who are, supposedly competent to make decisions. And I mean competency based on the legal process, not the judgment of psychiatrists or, you know, the average uh, community member. Uh, and so he, and he said, if a person wants to get ECT, electric convulsive treatment, although it's deeply problematic, that's up to them. They want to take any drug, it's up to them. And if they feel it works, wonderful. Congratulations. He was never for stigmatizing anything that's chosen. And of course, that's the issue around suicide. Uh, is that he wanted to provide the choice and the decision about the meaning of life to be made by the adult person, not some outside judge that's authorized. And so now, you know, these are, so I've always admired Tom for, and he was always very rigorous. And uh, I think uh, ultimately uh, to end his life, he decided to do it on his own.
Uh, and so, so he was always very consistent uh, and incredibly open to being critiqued. And of course, he wrote great responses to criticisms if people are interested. He was an admirer of Karl Popper, for some of you who may be interested, one of the great 20th century philosophers of science. And he admired pragmatism and uh, one of your favorite uh, academics uh, and mine, Morse Peckham. Right. Well, excellent. Good way to uh, finish things up. I think, yeah, a very good uh, summary of some of his main main points there. I'm sure some of that will be maybe strike people as if they haven't been exposed to this ideas before, some of that will strike people maybe as um, you know, hard to grasp. Um, but yeah, maybe we'll have more to say about those things in the future about yeah, well, I won't get into too, too many other details here. I, I, people might wonder why I don't press on some of these points, but I kind of already agree on uh, much of what you've mentioned. And uh, <clears throat> so I'll let things kind of rest at that point uh, where they are, I think, a really good um, kind of summing up of some of Saz's ma major um, ideas and why he's important. Uh, before we go i'm wondering if you have if you had to choose maybe one or two writings by zaz that would be accessible to people or that you think are especially um you know especially characteristic of tom what would you maybe recommend that people look at well so i don't have uh, insanity and it's the idea and its consequences, but it's a great summary of his issues around sort of this behavioral stuff, what we call mental illness issues. It's a wonderful summary. Uh, uh, mental illness can be a little difficult to understand, and it was relatively early in his writing uh, development. So I would recommend Insanity and its Consequences if you're interested in that. If you're interested in the idea of the issue of suicide, uh, and if you want a fair-minded kind of engagement, uh, what's called Fatal Freedom is an important read. Now, of course, my agenda is for you to look at it critically and then follow up. Uh, you know, rather than assume that an alternative like reading Tom is somehow the correct thing, that's up to you, you uh, to decide on your own. And I always recommend not accepting anything, uh, but testing anything that you hear. Pharmacracy is kind of a, a very interesting, uh, he, he coined the term, although it's, it, it, it's been t taken by others of the therapeutic state, which is clearly, uh, I think, we're, what we're under currently. But pharmacracy addresses this kind of the power of the medical approach to uh, human behavior. That's wonderful. I, I, sh I showed cruel compassion right. uh, earlier in the, uh, and that's a good start. Uh, and uh, if, if you get into it, uh, you can't go wrong with any book because 
He is such an insightful analyst, and he always provides references. Hmm. He's not just arguing ideas, but he says, you know, here's a reference that you can read that's not me. And that's important. Yeah. I just want to say this because uh, <laughs> I always get such pleasure out of telling my students the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the criteria by which we do mental illness in America, has not a single reference for any of the claims, hmm. which uh, appears to be a medical document. Hmm. Didn't you know, know that. So that's a problem uh, because yeah. what they're saying is, of course, we've done a lot of research, but go, you find it. Yeah. Well, if it's meant to be educational as well as effective, I think you, ha you actually have to put those things in there so the people can easily look up the scientific claims. Uh, and you wonder, you know, they charge over a hundred bucks they couldn't include uh, that extra goodie, uh, you know, in a, in a tool essentially that funds mental health. That's the reason we have to diagnose. In order to get paid, mental health organizations must use the DSM. That's the political uh, uh, kind of policy. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. Anyway, I, 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 yeah, maybe yeah. I've gone on too long. <laughs> well, uh, no, I think it was just right for me, at least. Um, well, thanks for taking the time to talk to me about Thomas Zaz. Um, it's been a real pleasure for me to start learning about him. It's a name that I'd heard for some years, but didn't know much about until I got in contact with you. And I have, I have kind of a rule where I try not to judge anyone until I spend... Um, a lot of time, you know, something like 20, I have kind of a rule around, I don't know, 25, 30 hours, 50 hours until I've spent a, a certain amount of time kind of reading their work, kind of experience, trying to uh, uh, experience what they were about. And so I'm not quite there, I think, with Zaz yet, but I'm glad that I got to him sooner rather than later. And uh, I hope other people will take a chance to um, get to know his work a little bit, I think, and not just, I feel he's one of those names that gets uh, brought up and dismissed because people have a kind of stereotype about who he was if they uh, know who he was. And I think definitely he pays some careful reading, so, or repays careful reading. So anyways, thank you so much for uh, taking some time to discuss Saz with me. Well, David, uh, uh, it's been my pleasure, and uh, I look forward to further conversations. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks. Uh, are we signing off now? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll uh, edit out the last <laughs> words that we say. I'll edit it out there. I'll stop okay. the uh, video. So I, and this is, doesn't need to be included, but you did ask, did I have any limitations in terms of time. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, that was on my list, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so I have no limitations in terms of his uh, views on mental 
health issues. I'm in total agreement with that. Uh, I guess the, the one thing, and I'm not sure if this is a limitation, uh, is that I have some concerns about uh, things that he didn't openly say uh, about uh, uh, some of the issues that, you know, for example, he, he was associated with the Scientologists. Right, yeah, I think I saw something about that, yeah. And uh, so that, to me, was a questionable thing. Hmm. He was, he's complete, you know, he said, look, uh, you know, they agree with my points of view, uh, you know, on mental health and all that. Hmm. Uh, I think that sometimes uh, you really do have to look at it a little bit beyond that in terms of that organization's kind of way of dealing with the world and you associating yourself with, with them. He tended, uh, so that was one issue, you know, that he, he, he didn't really, uh, in my judgment, make the best this decision in that. Mm. And he also was such a clear libertarian that uh, we didn't talk about this, but, you know, he, there was an attempt to, uh, Oust him from the uh, uh, from the medis- medical school at uh, Syracuse, hmm. and it was a, a legal effort. And hmm. they wanted because to, he was a libertarian. No, because he was uh, the myth of mental health guy. Oh, okay. Yeah, and yeah. so the mental health, uh, the public mental health uh, uh, administration in the state wanted to get him out. Yeah, he was so contrary. And what happened was that a couple of his colleagues, and it was a tenure issue, and he ultimately won, and he wasn't kicked out, but he had a couple of uh, assistant profs who didn't have tenure, uh, who were really thoughtful guys, and he didn't come to their defense, and they were fired. Hmm. So I thought that was, you know, a real self-serving kind of approach. Yeah. He abandoned them, essentially. Right. Um, you know, and uh, I thought that was a little unprincipled. Mm-hmm. So there are human uh, limitations to, to Tom that, uh, so I don't believe he was a perfect, uh, you know, intellectual or personal, uh, uh, you know, a person himself, it, there are limitations and there are some others that uh, I'd rather not uh, publicly talk about. Hmm. So yes, he was a, a fallible person, right. but it, it far is overshadowed by the important ideas that continue to be important. Uh, some of them of course have been internalized by psychiatry, hmm. you know, that's what you do, right? You you kind of uh, don't don't say we're wrong. You never say we're. You know, a good scientist says, "Yeah, we're wrong." What they've done is they've internalized, accommodated, and so they say, "Well, look, that's cool. You know, yeah, that's a good point." And uh, we've always been in agreement, uh, and so that's what happens. Karl Popper is, you know, a very similar person. 
Mm-hmm. I know we're beyond the thing, and I don't mean to. Uh, yeah, no, it's no problem. But no you know, Karl Popper's ideas are so prevalent that no one actually references them. You know, it's as if yeah, yeah, yeah. everyone, everyone, of course, we all common sense. sense. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and, and I'm always disturbed when I see uh, academics, uh, philosophers, uh, you know, uh, that he advanced these ideas most importantly, but hardly anyone, you know, in, induction, deduction issues. Well, mm-hmm. clearly, there is, although there are all these complicated, very difficult to understand ideas why there is a sort of induction, when I think that the problem is very clear, uh, you cannot predict the future from prior observation. It's just, uh, you know, that's it. Uh, mm-hmm. You can discuss it, you can call it different names, and you can say, well, maybe, you know. Uh, but factually, that's it. Uh, yeah. So there was a, it's like Sass, he has a very clear idea and he's hmm. too clear. Hmm. And philosophers who want to make a living then go endlessly, uh, you know, going through the nuances. And, uh, and of course, this is mental health as well. You know, we're doing brain scans with no meaningful philosophical and theoretical underpinning. Hmm. Because so what? Right. Unless there's a lesion that is diagnostic, you know, that mm-hmm. every time we're correct in getting the schizophrenic right and, you know, uh, freeing up the normal, then that would be great. That's it. But if you have people, you know, as we, as we have, we have much, uh, much more uh, overlap in terms of behavioral things in the brain. Mm-hmm. So people who don't uh, have any diagnosis, and of course, you know, diagnosis is a very fallible thing. I mean, who knows what that actually, how do you get that reliable and valid? But, uh, but once we have overlap, it's all over. Yeah. Diagnostic means I can tell cancer from non-cancer, right? If you have the fuzzy edges, you have to continue watching the cell. That's the way you deal with it medically. Yeah. Uh, but we don't have that sort of conversation uh, in a science of mental health. You see what I mean? I mean, these yeah. issues that constantly come up. Yeah, I was going to say that earlier when you were talking about um, the brain. Um, and yeah, one thing that I got, another thing that I got from Zaz kind of on this issue of the brain it, it seems when you're reading most psychiatrists and neuroscientists that, um, I mean, there's a, some of an, something of an idea now, well, maybe it's older, that the brain, um, that problems in the brain cause mental problems or behavioral problems, that the source of those problems is in the brain by some part being disformed or whatever. And they try to associate, for example, a, a atrophied hippocampus, maybe I can't remember exactly, with depression, for example. Yes. Um, but I often wonder if they've got the 
causation backwards. And I think that's something that Zaz uh, is mentioning a little bit uh, and mentioning in some places where he talks about um, there is probably, I think in the myth of mental illness, he talks about there's uh, probably chemical changes that take place in your brain when you learn a foreign language, but it's not the um, chemical changes that cause you to learn the foreign language. It's the changes happen because you're learning the foreign language. It's learning the language that causes changes to take place in your brain, not the other way around. And so that's kind of an, uh, an analogous thing to uh, would happen, at least with a lot of what we consider to be mental illnesses. I mean, yes, our, I mean, well, David, you're absolutely right. I and mean, we have lots of contemporary research about trauma changing brain uh, development. Uh, And of course, we we have more, you know, sort of uh, normative ideas that complex language has different impact on a young developing brain than simplistic language. So we have very good evidence that, of course, Engaging in the world, talking, uh, you know, having experiences does impact. It's just like, you know, training uh, to be an athlete. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there are differences in someone who's working out, who's running, who's doing. So, I mean, this is sort of uh, correct. And it's so, so undervalued uh, in mental health because it's not convenient to the politics Hmm. because you have, in order to use drugs, you have to have something wrong that the drug should address. And so, you know, the whole antidepressant and uh, anti psychotic drug uh, development, you know, multi-billion dollar a year businesses for the pharmaceutical companies enormously impact how we talk about these issues and why the focus on the brain, you know, because you have to have a target, a physical target Mm -hmm. uh, to, to, uh, you know, kind of sell the drug for. And of course it's just, Oh, life is tough, David, complicated, (laughs) isn't it? But, uh, Again, David, this was really fun. I really enjoyed it. I'll send it. I should get it in the next hour or two, you know, and I'll just send it off to you. And just let me know when when and if it goes up. Okay. I will. Take Take care. care. (laughs) I enjoyed it. It's a good way to start my morning. What time is it? Just Uh, It's almost 11 p.m. here. So a good way to end my... I'm sorry. I'm (laughs) keeping you up. All right. Good night. There's no problem. Good morning. I'll see you. (laughs) Have a good day, I should say. Talk to you later. Absolutely. Take care, man. You too.